Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 515 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. So what have you been up to this week? I can't believe that we're almost at the end of the year. For those of you who have already done your Christmas shopping, I salute you. I'm more of a last-minute shopper, so I absolutely envy those who are so organised that you've already crossed it off your list. I've also been busy co-creating a new version of our wonderful travel writing course. I say co-creating because I'm doing it with a fabulous travel writer who is constantly jet-setting around the world. She's a full-time travel writer. When she's not on a, on a plane or in an exotic location, I get very jealous of her Instagram posts, we're busy designing these new modules in our travel writing course, which has already seen so many graduates become travel writers, some full-time and some part-time. If this is something you're interested in, especially for 2023, go to travelwritingcourse.com.au and download a course outline. I'll be sure to email you when the new edition of the Travel Writing Course is ready. In other news, I've been spending time with family who are over from the UK and, you know, now that they can get here after so many years of not being able to, thanks to you know what, So that's been lovely and I have been going to the beach with them and hanging out and it's been so great to catch up after all this time. I've also been painting up a storm for those of you who are new to the podcast. I lead a double life as a visual artist and I have got a solo exhibition coming up in January, freaking me out slightly. So I've been busy creating a new body of work for that, which is a bit stressful to be honest, but also very enjoyable as I paint large-scale florals, and I get so immersed in them that before I know it, it's three o'clock in the morning, and the only reason I realize it's three o'clock is my cat Rocky starts screaming his head off and starts telling me I need to go to bed. Anyway, let's move on. For my writing tip this week, I've got a recommendation for a podcast. As you probably know, I'm a big believer in taking yourself on a creative date, letting yourself experience or do something creative, no matter what it is, even if it's not related to writing or whatever. And this podcast is a little bit of a creative date. It's called Song Exploder, if you haven't heard of it. And in each episode, musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. I find this sort of thing fascinating because it's so different from writing or painting, making a song is usually a huge collaborative effort. It might start off with one person having an idea, but then they'll bring in a guitarist or a drummer or a producer or a whole band, and then the song starts to take on a life of its own. It's an amazing insight into how creativity works in a completely different field from writing. But one thing that's the same or similar is how a musician or a band work and refine and rewrite and layer something on and remove something else, just like you do with a novel manuscript or a poem or a short story. And it can take months or even years for a song to develop into its final form. And that's a four minute song, not a, you know, 80,000 word or 120,000 word in some cases novel. What's weird is I often prefer the episodes featuring songs or artists 
I don't even like or hadn't even heard of. It's really that interesting. You can find the podcast at songexploder.net or in your podcast app. And now there's also a Netflix show on it. So I hope you enjoy that if you decide to check that one out. Now let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of The Brothers by S.D. Hinton to give away. An isolated house, a mysterious note, someone is watching. This is an absorbing atmospheric mystery about families, secrets and the bonds of brotherhood set on the Victorian South Coast. It's from Australian author S.D. Hinton and we have three copies to be won. When Special Forces veteran Jake Harlow returns to the hamlet of Lorne on the Victorian Southwest Coast for his younger brother Tom's funeral, he finds a sinister series of notes that suggest Tom's death was no accident. With Tom's best friend Stocky and ex-girlfriend Lucy, Jake starts to dig into secrets old and new. Who might be targeting the Harlow family and why? As they get closer to the truth, the danger becomes very real. But can Jake, burdened by scars both physical and mental, still protect anyone, including himself? All right, so you have your chance to win one of three copies of The Brothers by S.D. Hinton. Entries close on Monday, the 5th of December. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? The word of the week this week is ulu. That's U-L-U. Ulu. Do you know what it is? Well, an ulu is a type of knife used by the Inuit people. Traditionally, it was used by women, and the word actually means woman's knife. And it was used for things like skinning and cleaning animals, chopping food, trimming blocks of ice, and so on. Now, you might be thinking, Valerie, when am I ever going to need to know this word? But actually, you may have an ulu in your kitchen. You know, those round rocking knives that you use to chop herbs or slice pizza. That's an ulu. There you go. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Ben Bravery was diagnosed with bowel cancer when he was 28 years old. After undergoing 18 months of treatment, which included radiotherapy, chemotherapy, surgery, he realized he needed a change and he decided to become a doctor. Now a doctor, he's also now training in psychiatry and has written the memoir, The Patient Doctor. Let's have a chat to Ben. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking to you about your book, your memoir, The Patient Doctor. What a story. For 
Our audience who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Sure can. So it's a memoir that uh, picks up a little bit before I get bowel cancer, quite dramatically when I was 28 years old. Um, It kind of came out of nowhere. I had no family history. I went to the doctor not expecting to receive that diagnosis at all. And then I ended up having treatment for about 18 months and then tried to go back to my old life, which was in zoology and science communication, but things didn't feel right. Uh, It took a little while for me to accept that though. And I had to take a year off, kind of regroup. And then in that year, I decided to become a doctor. And there was two reasons to that. The first one was to go back into the system that had saved me and help patients uh, that were going to follow me. And the second thing was I'd noticed a few things along the way that could be better about healthcare. Um, And so I decided to head straight into the system, became a doctor. And then I realized disappointingly that thinking I was just going to go in and fix things for patients, that things seemed equally broken for doctors and medical students. And so my mission became a little larger. And because I've straddled these two worlds, I wear these two hats. Uh, I'm probably, you know, uniquely placed to talk to both groups and, and help them better understand each other. And the idea around that is that through that understanding, both sides, which are currently disappointed, frustrated, burnt out with the system, can demand together that the system puts them back at the heart of it. Wow. So that's pretty a dramatic decision to think, oh, I really want, there's things that, you know, could have been done better. So I'm going to make this momentous decision to become a doctor because it's not like you just go to the shop and buy a doctor's degree. (laughs) It's a massive commitment, right? And as you say, though, when you got in there, you discovered other things to fix. Where did this drive for fixing things come from? That's a really, really good question. I think um, uh, my old career was in zoology and it wasn't just the academic study of animals. I went into conservation. Mm. I saw that things were wrong with the way environments were protected and the way animals were conserved. And I wanted to help. Where it comes from before that, I think I was just born with this kind of sensitivity to certain issues. It was hard for me to walk past something that was broken and not try and fix it. Um, My mom is very caring. She's very empathic. Uh, Some of it obviously comes from her. And then some of it, I think, was just the luck of being born with this drive to want to make things better. You're right. I mean, going into med school seems ridiculous, right? Because you could do lots of things to make the system better. Uh, I could have sat on lobby groups and written articles, but I wanted to get in at the place where I felt like a lot of the power rested, where I felt like the system had been designed around doctors. More importantly, I wanted to learn their language. I wanted to get inside how they think about healthcare, how they approach patients to better understand why sometimes they don't always do the best job that I think they set out to do, but the system gets in the way of. But did you think all of those things before you made the decision? Did you think, oh, I want to get into their heads, I want to do um, and I, and I have to invest years and years and years of my life in order to do all of those things? Did you think it through or before you embarked on it? 
or are you saying this in retrospect really? Absolutely, I thought it through because, like you said, it's not a little thing to do. You don't just go online and do a 30-minute qualification or, you, you know, this is between uh, four and 12 years of your life. I was 32 when I made the decision to go into medicine. So I had a career. I got very sick and that had changed my perspective. So I guess I guess I had this, I had cancer as kind of a litmus test for if cancer came back or if I got sick, would I be happy doing what I'm doing? And the answer to that question was no, unless it's addressing the things that I noticed and helping other people. So the commitment actually seems small. And and to be honest, I try not to think about all the years involved because if you do, you'd probably tap out. I'm, Mm. I'm eight years now. Uh, four years at medicine and four years working as a doctor and I've still got another four years Uh, if you sat down and worked that out no one would sign up for that you've got to break it down into your goals and small little steps okay so the drive to fix things though which has obviously been um, uh, a part of you or your life is it something that's exhausting or energizing it's it's net energizing, okay. <laughs> but, that, but that does so that acknowledges that it's it's not always easy, and I've entered a system that is really complicated. It is old. It's got lots of entrenched power, and a very strict hierarchy. So I think naively that's the bit that I rushed into, not thinking through what I was actually going to be facing, learning the system and learning the language. Um, but despite that, I remain hopeful and committed for change. All right. So then you decide to write this book. At what point did you think, oh, I might turn my experiences into a memoir and why? (laughs) Uh, So good. So I had kept a diary for parts of my cancer journey. I started a little blog where I was experimenting with writing short uh, kind of articles on like how does radiation work and why is an MRI machine so loud? I was kind of interested in the science of it, right? And a few of the posts that I um, wrote about were a bit darker, more about the psychology of the change I was experiencing, the loneliness. And those uh, posts, despite how proud I was of the scientific stuff, always got the most comments. People wanted into that world. I kept a diary during cancer and then it was natural to keep writing during med school. My medical school is actually really nice in that they made as a part of our assessment reflective practice. So you were forced to sit down at the end of every term and structure your ideas. How had you responded to a situation? What came up for you? How did you handle it? I thought that was a beautiful part of my training. So at the end of med school, what that gave me was like this kind of stack of experiences and emotions and feelings. I didn't think I would put it all into a book, though, until somebody approached me with the idea. And how that happened was I was laying in bed the night before my first day as a doctor, and I was terrified. I had no idea what I was doing. I felt like I was going to kill everyone on the ward. I was anxious. It was 10 o'clock. I should have been asleep, ready for my first day on a cancer ward. And I tweeted, which is what people do now with their anxiety. I tweeted, I'm terrified. 
I've had cancer and now I'm going to start work as a cancer doctor. And it blew up. Again, it's that thing that people wanted that insight into the emotional world. So the next day I'm on ward rounds, completely overwhelmed and having no idea what I'm doing. And my pocket is alive. This thing beeps 18,000 times. So it's shared hundreds of times. There's hundreds of comments. There's up to 18,000 likes. And a publisher happened to see that tweet randomly and wrote to me the next day and said, we think you should come in for a meeting. And I had no idea about the book world. I get home to my wife, who's a journalist at the ABC, and I say, I've got this spam email from Hatchet. I've deleted it. (laughs) And she goes, hang on, what? And I, see, I, I pull up my spam folder, which I've deleted. And I show her, she goes, you idiot. That's Hachette. They're a publisher. You need to talk to them. And I went, oh, my God. So I wrote back to that person very quickly. I was like, sorry, I had deleted this, but I've undeleted it now. When would you like to chat? And, of course, the problem then is finding time to talk as a doctor that's running a ward uh, with all its overtime and all its challenges. Wow. Okay. So you have a chat with a shirt (laughs) (laughs) and how does that, and obviously you have written blog posts or a diary of some nature. How does, talk us through how that morphs into a a book that has to have a structure, that Mm. has to hold the reader, that has to have a, a, a thread running through it. How, what are the steps in between? So I'd also, at the end of, towards the end of medical school, year three and four, I started to think about this system stuff and what my voice, you know, what what I would be able to contribute to the discussion around healthcare, slowly realizing that I was in a really unusual position to have gone to medical school because I was sick, Mm. not having got sick after I was already a doctor. So I filtered everything through this patient lens. I'd written a few articles for the ABC. Uh, I'd pitched to the Guardian without success. And naively, I thought, well, it's just a big article. (laughs) Like, I can just, I can write this book because it's just a big article. And so I'm like, okay, so I've written a thousand word article. Like, okay, 85,000 words is manageable, surely. (laughs) But what I thought was, is I'll just break it down into a set of articles. So I had then, I, I was okay at focusing on an idea and then flushing out that idea. What I had to do over the arc of the book was learn how to write a book. So I'm, I don't consider myself a writer. Um, I had no formal training in this. I liked reading, of course, which I think all writers do. And so I had to start to look at other memoir for kind of general arc, tone, pace. I actively researched that. And then I stopped reading all that stuff and mapped out my own book. I had an agent who was... Um, quite clear that I needed a really clear structure. Mm-hmm. She wasn't happy to just sign on the dotted line with a little proposal. She wanted three chapters. She wanted a thorough outline. She wanted a clear word count. And so I had some early uh, discipline with how to do this thing. I resisted all of that because <laughs> I, I just wanted to sit down and tap weight the computer when I got a free hour every now and then and put this book together. But smarter people around me said, it's never going to happen that way. Fantastic. I love it. Okay. So you obviously did map out some kind of structure, wrote your three chapters, and then gave that to your agent. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I went back to Hachette with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we talked to a couple of other publishers as well. 
um, who were interested, but it, I ended up signing with the shed in the end. Uh, and then, th- then the job, the job came of actually delivering a product that I yes. had agreed to deliver. Now, being a doctor, I- I'm okay with just sitting at a desk and having to do something. That's a part of how you get through the study, right? You just say, I'm here for two hours. I have to do this thing. We get very good at uh, removing noise, focusing on an objective, completing a goal. And I'm quite nerdy being a scientist before that. So I, I built my own spreadsheet with uh, word targets. So it, 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 it calculated in real time my progress, my percentage completion, how many chapters I had to go. Because for me, keeping the, the spirit alive, you know, seeing the progress was really important because a bit like training at med school, if I sat down and thought about the 85,000 words, I would walk away. I love it. Okay. So you've got your spreadsheet. Um, you had to fit this around being a doctor. So you had to fit this around um, your all a very demanding job. So how long did it take to write the full manuscript? And how much of that was drawn on the stuff you'd already written, you know, in your diary? It took uh, from the tweet I sent to the proposal and then the manuscript, uh, it was two years. I wasn't working that on the book the whole time. There were some phases in there where I wasn't working. But once I signed the book deal effectively, I treated it like a job and I added it to my, uh, my timetable. Before then, it was very much motivation-dependent, opportunistic, once I had a product to deliver, again, it's the doctor thing. I've, mm. got, to, I've got to get it in on time. Um, so I broke it all down and mapped it out. Very little ended up coming from stuff I'd written before. Mm. It didn't lend itself mm. to two things. My voice as it was now, which had changed, and the, the sophistication required when you're expecting a reader to hang in with you over 20, 30 chapters. Mm. So uh, while the essence or the feeling or the idea of that stuff might have transposed, very little of the text did. It effectively needed me to start with a blank document and go again. Yes, I think people are a bit misguided when they think they can slap together a bunch of blog posts and it's going to be magically turned into a book. But So what was the period then between signing and knowing that you had to deliver? Uh, I think I had less than a year to do it. I was very surprised in the book world, not being in the book world, about the lead times. I was like, hang on, this book's coming out in two years? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. I figured I would write something and it would come out the next month. Um, So I was, but but I, that structure was very clever and they know what they're doing, obviously. Uh, Particularly as a first-time author, I had to take the advice of the people around me I had to listen to people when they said, you need more time for this. You don't need so much time for that. Uh, This kind of structure might help you. And then I started to read a lot about the mechanics of writing. So I I watched videos on YouTube by agents and publishers and editors. And I read some stuff about beta reading and how big, big, big guys um, and girl authors test content 
Um, obviously, that's all way outside my scope. But what that did was that kind of gave me an insight into the, the technique or the behind the scenes. It's, it's a bit like how I approached a medical school exam where I spend half the time on the content and then half the time on exam strategy because that's the key. Right. So you can know as much as you know, but delivering that knowledge in the time that you've got with the questions you need to is the way you pass. And so I figure here, I've got the book, right? It's in my head. What I need is a way of writing. And so I had to build the habit. So because you had you were forced early on by your agent to effectively do kind of a chapter by chapter breakdown, you 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 already had that, which is great. So does that mean you could just slot that into your timetable in your spreadsheet, like write this chapter on Thursday or whatever? <laughs> is that what you did? Yeah, I wrote it in order and I wrote it according mostly to the plan that I'd written. I didn't show any work to anyone before it was finished. So they had the three sample chapters and then I just went and wrote the book. I didn't get advice uh, from my agent or the publisher before I wanted to submit the first draft. Mm. Uh, Obviously, I did show my wife a lot. Being a journalist, she was able to provide a really important feedback during that phase. And and she did some, some good, what I now know is structural editing in that early phase. Um, to get it to a standard that I could be proud to show other people. Did you enjoy the process? Oh, no. Oh, really? No, honestly, really? Oh, some, like there were moments of flow, right? You know, this concept of flow where you forget time, you're coming from an inner place of uh, satisfaction, an inner place of joy. There were moments like that. Most of it felt a lot like work though. And that's okay because for me, I had a task. I I believed in the goal and I wanted to achieve it. Having said that, the writing process is extraordinary in the sense that I was able to work things out while writing. So it's not like I had the key take-homes or the lessons learned or even the depth of analysis in my proposal. The book took on a whole other meaning as I started to get ideas from my brain organized onto paper. I was seeing connections where I hadn't before. I was spending time with emotions and psychology that I hadn't before. And I was able to make links that I think made the book richer in the end, um, but are not at all reflected in the proposal simply because Mm. the process of writing is so creative. So when you say, you know, you, you had a goal and obviously the, the surface goal is you're going to write a manuscript, you're going to write a book, um, but what was your larger goal? What was the, it, it, it can't simply be writing a book for the sake of writing a book. There must have been something driving the desire to write the book, driving a message to get the message out there, or or you wouldn't have been or it would make no sense to be doing this thing that you largely didn't enjoy. <laughs> What's the greater goal? The, the greater goal was to uh, bring to the world my perspective, having worn both of these hats as a patient and then a doctor, to basically say that both sides of the doctor-patient relationship were hurting and that the reasons I think they're hurting are often quite similar But because the sides are so different, they're almost worlds apart sometimes in terms of education and power. And let's not forget, one side is sick 
and one side is well. That's an enormous difference in itself. They often don't get to see or have the time to experience each other's viewpoint. What I could see was that the the sides might have been frustrated and they were saying slightly different things about why they were frustrated. But in essence, to me, it seemed like the same thing. And that was they weren't validated. So the, the doctors and the medical students didn't feel validated by the system and patients didn't feel validated by the doctors in the system. And what I, what I, my, my purpose was let's just blow this world up and let's make all of this transparent and let's show doctors that patients are people and let's show patients that doctors are people. In, in, in a way, just, just to see each other from a completely different standpoint. Mm. So now that you've found or, or you, 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 you're found this voice and created this voice and, and have put, put it out there in the world, is this platform, writing, writing books, something you intend to continue to do in addition to your other responsibilities as a doctor <laughs> and change agent? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, look, I was, a bit, I was a bit negative before. Like, yes, <laughs> a lot of it was work, right, and a lot of it was dull. And a lot of it is just you have it to sit down and type and you don't want to, but you've got to. Uh, I'm realistic about that. But the process was incredible. And at times I doubted whether I had anything to say. I'm sure that's normal, particularly for a first-time author. I wondered that my ideas weren't interesting, that I was wasting people's time. But the response to the book has shown me that that's not true, that I've been inundated by correspondence from nurses and doctors and health administrators and patients and their families. You know, yes, this is my story, or, oh, my God, this makes everything clear. And that is a really nice feeling. I've got other ideas now about how I want to expand on this breaking down the barriers between patients and doctors and uh, that might be a book or two down the track, but as you say, finding time is going to yes. be the hard thing. The thing you're doing now is you are taking, so you're not only a zoologist, not only a science communicator, not only an author, not only a doctor, not only, uh, you know, a, a prior cancer patient, you're now undertaking specialty training in psychiatry. <laughs> so What's driving that? What are you trying to fix with that? So that's a bit interesting. I went to medical school to become a cancer doctor, right? That seems the logical thing, get cancer, treat cancer. Uh, But at medical school, I became a bit disengaged with the approach that most specialties take to patients and healthcare. So I was a bit disappointed. Uh, It was a bit like the sheen wore off of the mantle that I had doctors placed on, right? And I I fell in love with the way that psychiatry still holds on to the idea that a patient is a person. And they don't call it a doctor-patient relationship. They call it an alliance. And to me, that spoke to how I saw the connection. I saw it as an alliance. Now, psychiatry is not perfect. It has the problems that all the other specialties have. High bed demand, ego, some aggression in how they interact with each other, I focus on medicines over other parts of care. Of course, I'm realistic about that. But training in psychiatry means that with its emphasis on the person and its emphasis on the relationship, 
I get to be the kind of doctor I want to be now. I don't have to get through five, six, seven years of training in order to be the person I want to be. I get to do that now. And that was the best way of holding on to who I am, which if I finish training and I've lost who I am, which I see in my colleagues, I see them. They're anxious, they're depressed, they're burnt out, or they leave. There's no point going through all this and being a shell at the end of it that one doesn't recognize myself and two isn't there for the people that need me. So psychiatry is the perfect fit. Wow. Have you given thought to beyond psychiatry at your next iteration (laughs) (laughs) or your next major commitment? (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of uh, organizations have asked me to come and talk uh, because they're excited by the idea that there's a voice there that has these two hats that's also calling for change. I should say this, the healthcare system is hungry for change. All components of it want to change. They're just not sure how. And they've got to sit down at the table together and connect with how to do that. So I would love to be involved in medical education. I think uh, what we do to poor medical students during that process is really unfair and unkind. So I'd like to get involved and change how we do that. And then I'd like to be involved in how we train junior doctors because that is also very unkind and it's not setting uh, empathic doctors up for success. Um, so there's a bit of there's maybe a bit of teaching. There's maybe some leadership around medical training. Um, I don't see myself running a hospital. <laughs> I, I don't see that. I see myself more as kind of a, you know, a, a, a person that's going to bring people together, a bit like the book's trying to bring two sides mm. together. Yeah, maybe aggregate in a way and then help people, you know, have dialogue. Yeah, so you don't want to run a cog in the system, even though you might be effective. You want to affect systemic change. So the thing is, I usually end uh, these chats with um, asking my interviewee for their top three writing tips. But I'm going to ask you if you could pick three things that you want to fundamentally change about the healthcare system then, what would those top three things be? Oh, wow, Valerie, that's massive. So the thing I should say is in the book, I don't pretend to have all the answers, right? Like this thing is too complex. I've only been in the business eight years. It would be arrogant for me to think I have all the answers. Um, But there's a few little things we can do. One is we can design processes and physical spaces, remembering that there's people in them. I don't know if you've ever spent time ill on a hospital ward. I hope you never have, but they're noisy and they're busy and they're hostile. It's almost as if they forgot that sick people were going to need to lay in them and try and feel better. They've effectively designed a workplace and then stuck sick people into it. So I'd really like to see a redesign of that space. That's the physical. In terms of the doctor pipeline, I'd, I'd want to open the doors at medical school to a much wider range of people. And I say this as a white guy, I think we need more diversity being trained up in healthcare. You need people from all walks of life with a whole bunch of lived experiences. You need people that have battled addiction, that maybe were spent some time in foster care, that are Indigenous, that are from a, a, a culturally and linguistically diverse background. We focus on the exam scores, 
And that is very important, obviously. But there is so much more to being a doctor and those people are excluded from the process. That's the second thing. The third thing is I'd really like patients to remember that the person on the other side of the table, maybe wearing a white coat, maybe not, is just a person. And to equalize some of that power, they should use Dr. Google. They should take printouts of that material to their doctor. They should take a friend to all, nearly all appointments because there's power in numbers. They should make notes and ask questions and they should be empowered to talk to the doctor about things that aren't medicine so that you can actually connect on a human level. The illness is important. Of course, that's why you're there. But the more you connect as people, the better you'll understand each other. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Everyone, get your hands on a copy of The Patient Doctor. Thank you so much for your time today, Ben. Thank you, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ben Bravery, who I think is really living up to his name because it's very brave to put yourself out there with all of your opinions about the industry you're working in and, and so on. Anyway, good on you, Ben. Now, I have a fun fact for you. So you probably know the word bogus, which means counterfeit or fake, and which was probably made quite famous in the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure which, if you don't know because you're too young, is one of Keanu Reeves's earlier films. Anyway, the word actually comes from the name of a machine for making counterfeit coins. Then eventually the name became applied to the coins themselves, before meaning fake more generally. So there you go. You can wow people at Pub Trivia with that one. We've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, do join us in our podcast community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.